There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 419. And today, I'm joined by Michael Easter to discuss his fascinating new book, The Comfort Crisis, and his surprising case for getting uncomfortable, and not coincidentally, how perfectly hunting fits into this way of living. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. Today we've got a really interesting show and a little bit different than our usual ones. We're not specifically talking about whitetail deer or deer hunting, but we're talking about a book that I recently read that, I mean, the whole time I read it, I just kept thinking to myself, this is why I hunt. This is why I hunt. So much of what's covered in this book is is like a master class or, or I don't know, a thesis on why folks should pick up hunting. Now, this book is called The Comfort Crisis, Embrace Discomfort to Reclaim Your Wild, Happy, Healthy Self. And Michael Easter, the author of that book and the guy who we're going to be talking to on the show, went in and just took a fascinating journey across the world, examining how we as modern Americans and people across the globe have gotten kind of soft. We've gotten too comfortable, and it's taken us away from those core things that made us human, that made us who we are. And a big part of that is all the stuff that's wrapped into hunting, and it's just it's so relevant to what we do that I had to dive in this one. So we cover all sorts of topics related to, shoot, I don't know, the value of being bored, the value of taking on hard challenges, pushing yourself, getting uh, not only uncomfortable, but getting bored, getting physically challenged, uh, getting hungry. Uh, I mean, as I say, all these different things. I'm sure you're thinking, yep, done that, yep, done that, yep, done that. We as hunters are fortunate that we're actually getting to uh, live a lot of the stuff that he touched on here in the book. But what's really particularly interesting is he not only kind of talked about the common sense stuff that I think a lot of us think intuitively, but he's actually found research and science and and really solid numbers and data that back up a lot of things that I think a lot of us believe. Now we can point to a lot of stuff that backs all that up. So I think it's, uh, I, I think I should just stop rambling. I think we should get into it 
Really interesting conversation. I thoroughly enjoy what Michael had to share with us today, and I highly recommend this book. This has been one of the better books I've read yet this year. Highly recommend The Comfort Crisis, and I think anyone out there who enjoys the outdoors, who enjoys to hunt, who's into this kind of stuff, I think you will really enjoy this book. It's going to give you a great reason to keep doing what you're doing and to encourage others to try it out too. So without any further ado, let's get into my conversation with Michael Easter. All right, I am excited to have on the line here with me, Michael Easter. Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I uh, I appreciate you being here. I'm looking forward to this one because it is, you know, I mentioned this to you just a second ago before we started recording. Your book, The Comfort Crisis, puts puts evidence and science and a framework behind a lot of things that I've intuitively believed for a long time uh, and that I would tell my wife about or I'd tell people that I used to work with or something. And now I can just say, hey, read this book and you'll get it. And um, that's a very handy tool, I think, that I'm going to have now and for a lot of people. Because, you know, the, the subtitle of your book here is Embrace Discomfort to Reclaim Your Wild, Happy, Healthy Self. And, and so much of what you talk about in this book um, just kind of puts words to how I've tried to, to live my life in a lot of ways. And I, I think a lot of folks listening to this podcast have as well. So after I read it, I knew my listeners would be really into this one. And uh, that's a long-winded way of saying, Michael, uh, thanks for being here. And um, I guess to start, before we even get to know you, What's your, what's your argument with this book? Like, wh- why did you write this? What's the thesis here? What does the world need to know that you're giving them with this book? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm glad you liked it. I'm glad I've given you a tool and uh, put some science behind these ideas that, you know, you've had. And I think we all sort of intuitively have, um, but I'm kind of in a, a unique position to look into some of the stuff in the book as my background is a as a health and science journalist. So I'll give you the short answer and the long answer of the book. The short answer is that in the comfort crisis, I investigate basically how our modern day comforts and conveniences are linked to a lot of our most pressing problems today. So things like obesity, chronic disease, uh, depression, even feeling sort of a lack of meaning, like why am I here? Um, And how by stepping outside of our comfort zones in a variety of different ways, we can dramatically improve our overall mental, physical, and even spiritual well-being. So to investigate this idea, I traveled about 30,000 miles around the world. I met with experts ranging from Harvard researchers and Icelandic geneticists to Buddhist lamas and special forces soldiers. And... What I think will be interesting to your audience is that I spent 33 days in the Alaskan backcountry up in the Arctic on a caribou hunt, and that hunt serves as the overarching narrative of the book that kind of gets me into each of these discomforts that we've essentially removed from our lives that are important for us as human beings in a variety of ways. Yeah. Yeah. And that that through that through line, that narrative of that. (laughs) Uh, caribou hunt was was fascinating uh partly because i think almost anyone who loves wild places loves a good story up in alaska right that's the dream <laughs> the final frontier yeah. for so many of us that want to be uh people want to be in those places and it, it also took me back to some experiences i had up in alaska chasing 
chasing caribou as well. You just got it for a much longer period of time. So I was, uh, was jealous of the full month plus you got to spend out there. And with a really interesting guy too, you, you got to spend time with Donnie Vincent, who, uh, has been on this podcast a handful of times and is well yeah. known within our community and a, a great representative of our community. So, uh, you got a great introduction to it. I did. Yeah. And so to kind of let people know how it all came together, I guess, is that my background is that I'm a journalist who writes about the science of human health and performance. I have my entire career. So I've worked in, I'm a professor at uh, UNLV right now. And before that, I worked at Men's Health Magazine. I've written for Outside Magazine, Scientific American, all these kind of places. So background is kind of an investigative journalist. And early on in my career, I'd sort of noticed that anything that improves us usually requires going through some form of discomfort. So for example, exercise, uh, weight loss, you know, going out in nature is uncomfortable, but we know nature is good for us. And as a writer, I'm always sort of drawn to people who live on the edges. And through this work I've done, meeting all these different characters, working for magazines, I became good friends with uh, Donnie. So all your readers are, sorry, not readers. I'm so used to saying that because I'm a writer. All your <laughs> <Yeah>. listeners <laughs> will know Donnie. And he invited me to come up on this 33-day hunt in the Arctic with him. And, you know, I had never hunted before. I mean, I'd been drug along on some hunts when I was a kid, but it was mostly just guys tipping back whiskey. And, you know, I'd done some outdoor things, but not really anything this, you know, long or, or epic or really embedded myself in a place that long. And um, I get up there and it was a completely new experience for me. You know, because of my background, I thought I sort of knew uh, everything about health and hardship. And, you know, I'd embedded myself in some of the world's most extreme gyms and kind of done some crazy endurance events and talked to all the gurus and researchers. And I get up there and it's just unlike anything I'd ever experienced because I was out of my comfort zone in a variety of ways the entire time. So it's like, you know, these discomforts I face are things like constantly hungry because, you know, we're not packing in a ton of food and we're moving all day. Uh, we're carrying everything we need on our backs, you know, so it's ev everything requires effort. It's freezing cold up there. So I'm from, I live in Las Vegas. Going from Vegas <laughs> up to the Arctic yeah. was like, oh my God. Like I was just freezing. Um, exposure to the weather, even things like being in this insane silence. It's just so different than the world we live in today. And, you know, there's also everything is challenging. Like we got put in positions where failure could have meant, I mean, true, true danger. And all this stuff kind of amplified over time. You know, it's like the longer you're out there, the more intense this kind of gets. And um, but anyways, we make it out. Uh, it was a it was an amazing time. But when I get back to my modern, comfortable life, I'm I mean, I'm totally transformed after going through all these discomforts. I'm like 10 pounds lighter. I'm fitter than I've ever been, you know, but I think more importantly, it just felt like just the dial on my physical, mental I mean, even spiritual health and how I saw the world had kind of been moved 10 notches. It's kind of like this reset on my life, you know, mm -hmm. and and having written about health for more than a decade and all these topics like this is the thing that moved things the most for me. And it was like, well, what the hell happened up there? You know, and I kind of realized I thought back to that observation I made about discomfort and then I kind of saw 
my modern life since I'd been out uh, in the Arctic where things are hard and everything requires work and effort. And then I look at my life in Vegas and it's like, oh my God, like humans are so unbelievably comfortable in every single way now. Like we've engineered literally everything in modern life to be easy, to be effortless and to be comfortable. So that goes, I mean, think about your daily life now. It's like we live in buildings and that are climate controlled and we have easy access to food. Food is always there. We don't really have to move or work at all to make a living. Um, all these things are great, but they've also taken something away from us, right? So I wanted to know, you know, are there any downsides to all this comfort we live in? And are there any legitimate science-backed benefits to pushing against comfort and sort of seeking out discomfort? So that started this big, uh, investigation into the science. And I traveled around the world to meet all kinds of different uh, interesting characters who are sort of living on the edges and, and investigating this idea all in their own unique way. So I went to, uh, I met researchers at Harvard. I met some doctors at the Mayo Clinic, special forces soldiers, like I mentioned, Buddhist leaders in Bhutan. I mean, neuroscientists, just people all across the board. And I came to the conclusion that I stated before that you know, there are definite downsides to all the comforts that we live in and having to never be challenged in a variety of ways. And by getting out our, our comfort zones in a handful of ways, uh, we can move the dial on things for ourselves. and sort of exploring our edges, uh, we grow. And, you know, some of these ways that you can insert discomfort back into your life are relatively easy. And some you have to, you have to do something a little more epic, you know, you have to go out and really, really push against your edges. Yeah. So that's kind of how I ended up uh, investigating this. That's interesting. I, I was going to ask you whether you had gone into that hunt knowing you were writing this book already and you were looking at that as this great place to test things or if that hunt, you know, inspired you to dive in. So it's interesting to get that backstory. Um, it's funny. So much of of how I talk about hunting with you know my non-hunting friends or family revolves around some similar things to that which you just described uh, you know i've i've always thought that hunting is one of those most human activities it, it presses these buttons that are hardwired deep into the essence of of who we are and what we are and you made the point in the beginning of your book that you know the modern conveniences that we enjoy today all that stuff you described that makes our life so relatively easy in a lot of ways uh, that's only been around a hundred years or so, but the species that we are homo sapiens, we've been around for 200 to 300,000 years. So that means this modern comfort thing we're experiencing now is 0.03% of our time on earth. That's how long we've had to adapt to this new world. We're in the rest of our process of becoming humans was living a very, very, very different lifestyle which is what our bodies are biologically built to do and our minds are built to do, we're not doing a lot of that stuff anymore. So it, it makes sense that that could, you know, lead to challenges, lead to issues and lead to some of us having these desires to connect back to that stuff that made us who we are. So for me, that that's hunting and you, you point out a lot of different ways that you can be doing that uh, across the board. Um, but let's talk about the downfalls of comforts. This is something that you discuss quite a bit too. You know, this radical um, 
left turn away from what humans were kind of built to do. All this stuff that we now have that's made life so much easier, uh, so less physically stressful in certain ways, et cetera, et cetera. What are the what are the symptoms of that that we're seeing now um, that you found as you started researching this? Oh man. I mean, there are so many and it's, I kind of frame it like this and I, I sort of hinted at this when I was talking initially about the book, but it's like, just stop and look, like, look at everything around you. Everything around you right now is all, it's all been invented within a hundred years. Like the stuff that is most influencing your life every single day is all brand new. So even, I mean, you're probably like sitting and listening to this uh, right now. Like chairs aren't that old. They're like, we invented them a couple, a few hundred years ago, you know, uh, climate control, even the shoes on your feet, uh, transportation, how we have it now, the food we eat and its availability, your constant distractions like media. I mean, media is only, digital media is only about a hundred years old, you know, and we, involve, we evolved in these really rough and tumble environments where we didn't have all these things that made our lives easier. So we developed these drives to always be comfortable. So this is why, this is why we get hungry, right? Hunger sucks. And it's basically telling you, it's your body telling you, hey, you need to go out and get food. And I'm going to make you feel really bad right now so that when you do get food, you'll feel better. And then you'll know, hey, I, I need to eat more. Um, everything, I mean, movement, like having to exercise. The reason that exercise is so uncomfortable is because in our past environments, there just weren't enough resources where it would, it, it never made sense to do any sort of extra effort, right? Because we, there's just not enough food around to burn those extra calories. So your body just, our bodies evolved to not want to do any extra effort. And now in today's society, where there's food everywhere, our body is still telling us, hey, you should eat more because that keeps you safe. And hey, why would just sit around? That's so much better for us, you know, but, but that's not the case anymore. So uh, anthropologists call this an evolutionary mismatch. It's essentially when we developed, uh, developed traits that in one environment are advantageous and help us survive and procreate. And then we move uh, into a different environment, uh, they can backfire more yeah. or less. And I love what you said, too, about there being something, I think, inherently human about hunting. Now, going into this, I'd never hunted before. And I could see that I could see that that would be the case. But having to experience it, I think, was a it was a really new, interesting uh, experience for me across the board. And I think you're right. Like hunting. We're so removed from the modern environment when we're hunting. And I'm saying this as a person who's only been a few times. So, um, but it's just radically different than even, you know, climbing a mountain or doing any other random outdoor activities that a lot of people do today where we're on this sort of trail and we don't veer off the trail. Um, and hunting, we're really embedding ourselves in the wild. And there are scientific benefits to that for our brains and bodies. And having to engage with the life cycle too. I mean, that was a huge leap for me mm -hmm. as well, right? It's like before this, it was like, oh yeah, meat just magically appears at the grocery store. Right. You just go down and buy it. I, I never thought about meat. You know, it's just like you grow up eating meat and whatever. That's what you do. But, yeah, exactly. And there's no problem. I, I'm not. Um, I'm not criticizing that at all because it's just. I mean, it's amazing that we have such a great food system that can keep us all alive. But there, 
but I think there are tangible benefits to having to think about where your meat comes from and where your food comes from and go through these periods where, you know, maybe you experience a little hunger. Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, you point out five kind of overarching themes, five categories of discomfort in some way that you explore the, you know, how we've kind of, how we've moved away from them and learned as a society to avoid them. And then, you know, what the, contrarian position actually embracing these different discomforts can can lead to in a positive way and and i want to walk through each one of these i'll i'll i will simplify and over generalize a title for each one and kind of set us up basically the first one is doing hard shit the second one is being bored the third one is getting really hungry the fourth one is getting comfortable with mortality and the fifth one was like you said exercise work in your body and and like I mentioned at the top, this is basically um, like a thesis that proves why people should hunt. I mean, all five of those things are discomforts you have to learn to embrace within the hunting experience. And that when I explain to people like why I do this, I could basically walk you through those five things and how I've been pushed in these different five categories to learn more about myself or learn more about the natural world or learn more about our connection to these things and animals and life and each other and, and all this stuff. I mean, this is why this, this one specific experience that I'm involved in has helped me grow. And, and I think you make the point in, in your book that there's a lot of other ways that you can do that, but it's, it's nice that I had this one, uh, example that it just so perfectly lined up with that as I read through all these things like yes 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 um, more please I get it um, so let's let's examine that first one which is something that I feel like deep down in my bones so often when I feel that I'm experiencing the lack of it so you know do hard stuff uh, and I think you're one of your title chapters that do hard stuff um, outside as much as possible something like that Um, can you talk a little bit about just that in in kind of introductory theme that you explain on here and how everything, you know, we are getting soft in a lot of ways. We're not challenging ourselves in certain ways. Um, I love the Masagi concept that you talk about in there too. So can you kind of introduce the, the setup there on, on that one? And then I'd love to, you know, explore some of the different ways you found people adding new challenges to their life and, and what that gives them. Totally. So the idea is basically this. If you look at our past lifestyles, I mean, we did epic challenges in nature all the time. And this was all without safety nets. And this was just a part of life. So this could be something like having to hunt, going on an epic hunt. Uh, this could be we have to move down to our summering grounds and we have to, to you know go over this pass and the weather's coming in. I mean, there's all these things we did that were challenging. And each time we would complete one of these challenges, we'd sort of go outside of our comfort zone. We'd get put in a position where failure could be very dangerous, but we'd have to dig deep and we'd make it through. And then we'd learn something about ourselves and we would expand our potential, right? We know that when people do hard things and come out the other side, they are improved from that. But in modern life, we don't have real challenges. Like today, you can live a normal life and literally never be challenged at any time. And that isn't, that isn't okay life. Um, but by never exploring the edges of your potential, you never really know what you're capable of today. We have 
an outsized fear of failure because nowadays, what is failure for the average American? It's like, oh, I was presenting uh, to my office and I messed up a slide and my boss gave me a bad look and oh my God, that was that was just terrible. Mm-hmm. Everybody that saw was, the finale of Game of Thrones and I missed it. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. Or it's like, I didn't get enough likes on this Instagram uh-huh. page. Oh my, oh my God, uh, my life is falling apart, right? So because we never challenge ourselves with these real things that are dangerous, we now we now view these very minuscule quote unquote failures in our lives with this outsized uh, fear and we have an outsized reaction to them. So this is why they think why a lot of researchers think that depression and anxiety are so high, uh, particularly among young people. If you look at how um, the generations have unfolded, like there was this there's this spike in anxiety and depression among kids born after 1990. And that is when helicopter parenting became a thing. When, you know, kids couldn't go outside anymore uh, because there was a lot of reasons this happened, but mostly there was like media fears around kidnapping. So it's like kids couldn't go outside. Uh, You know, playgrounds became all plastic so you couldn't bump your head, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So the idea that I lay out in the book is this concept called Masogi. And now I learned this from a guy whose name is uh, Marcus Elliott. And his background is he's a Harvard-trained MD. He uh, is sort of a pioneer in sports science. I mean, he's one of the leading sports scientists in the country. He His first job is he worked for the Patriots. He reduced their injury rates to from, I think it was like 21 hamstring injuries a year down to three, helped them win some Super Bowls. Then he was like the performance director of Major League Baseball. And now he opened his own facility and he has a partnership with the NBA and NBA players come through there and he does all this really fascinating science around movement and injury risk and training. So I told you all that to basically tell you that he's a smart guy who's super into all this numbers and data and figures. But being this guy whose job is to basically make people perform better, he also told me like a lot of this stuff can't be measured and there are certain things uh, that you can do to improve performance. So he calls this thing he does uh, Masogi. He started doing this when he was in grad school uh, at Harvard. And once a year, he picks one really epic task in nature. And the rule is, is that it has to be really hard, which he defines by saying it has, you have to have a 50% chance failing it. And then rule number two is that you can't die. (laughs) So... Very he just cute. makes up, yeah, exactly. Uh, he makes up these wacky challenges, like he's uh, him and athletes will go out and and his friends and, for example, one of them they got this eighty five pound boulder and they walked it five miles uh, under water under the ocean off the coast of Santa Barbara. It took them like five six hours. They had no idea. I mean, they don't train for any of these things. It's just like we're gonna do something crazy in nature. And there's going to be all these moments where we want to quit. Um, we're only going to have a half a chance of actually finishing this thing. But along the way, we're going to like learn something about ourselves and what we're truly capable of and face these, you know, sort of real challenges and face down our fears. And by coming out the other side of that, it's like you can bring those tools back into your uh, normal life to really move the dial, you know? Yeah, man, there's there's so that idea resonates with me so much. And it's, 
it's it's kind of funny. There's I've been reading a lot about a very separate, well, maybe not entirely separate idea around evolution and extinction mm-hmm. and how a lot of extinction events, you know, this being kind of the opposite of evolution happens, you know, it's a long, slow trickle of these things happening. And then there's these punctuations of massive change that, you know, are, are where the real change happens, you know, environmental mm-hmm. conditions warp dramatically forcing immediate adaptation or extinction. Um, and so you have these events that, you know, these, these staccato events um, that define life or the lack thereof. And if you, so that's like on the macro scale, if you zoom that into the micro scale of individual lives, I think you make a case that the exact same thing is true. You know, yeah. like so much of our life is just, it's just day by day doing the same kind of thing. Groundhog's day, yada, yada, yada. And then we have these events. We have these challenges, whether it's, you know, uh, self-induced, we've, we've taken it upon ourselves to do to have a challenge or something comes out of the blue, hits you over the head and changes your life for you. But I think so much of your life is, is colored by these tough things. Um, Sometimes that can be fun, sometimes not so much. But in this yeah. case, like this is a way to steer positive change in your life by creating those tough, challenging events. Um, and I love it. It's something that I've tried to do and always want to do more of. I, I, I crave, you know, challenges, goals, testing yourself. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard a lot of folks. I think it. I think it was first popularized within the climbing world, but there's this concept of type one, two, and three fun. Are you familiar with that? I'm not, no. Tell so, me about it. So I love this idea. Type one fun is like you're going to go play basketball with your buddies, or you're going to go watch a movie, or you go and take a roller coaster ride or something. Like it's it's simple fun that's fun in the moment, but it's the kind of fun that, you know, it's great right now and then, but a day or two from now, right, it's kind of slipped away. It's nothing that substantial. Type two fun is the kind of fun where I think a, a Masagi falls into this category where you're doing something in the moment. Man, it is tough. It is challenging. You might look at your buddy. You're climbing a mountain and you look at your friend and you're like, man, this is stupid shit. Like we are. This is miserable. This is crazy. But yeah. you you do it, you get through it, and the next day you're you know you're beaming like man that was incredible that was amazing I can't believe we did that and and a year later you're telling the story and five years later when your buddies get back together and you're having a beer you're telling the story again and those are the things that uh, I live for I live for like that type two stuff and then type yeah. three is the stuff like where you just about die and it's scary as hell and maybe it's not fun at all but it makes for a great story so usually the yeah. sweet spot's the type two fun um yeah. but i feel like this concept that you've been writing about you know it fits into that a lot i mean whether it's planning a a week-long backpacking trip or a, a crazy day like what you're describing uh elliot was doing uh or people you know that sign up for one of these Hundred mile ultra marathons. Uh, I mean, anything like that that just like pushes you to go beyond what you think is possible and make you do something crazy and forces you to 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 just like dig in. Um, there's just, I mean, there just seems to be so much, so yeah. much positive that comes out of it. And you and you, I mean, the science backs that up, right? I mean, there's a lot of things that come from those. Yeah. Well, think of um, 
think of the work of Joseph Campbell, who's the guy. I mean, he's this. Uh, he came up with this idea of the hero's journey because he investigated all these different yeah. cultures around the world, and he found that most of their stories of myths they have the same key elements, and it's that the hero uh, leaves the comfort of their normal life, they go out into this trying uncomfortable middle ground and they really, you know, battle and they're up against it. They're uncomfortable. They're not sure if they're going to make it to the other side, but they do, they succeed. And then they come back into their normal life and they are better for it. And they have evolved as a person. So this is the same concept of like a rite of passage, which is another thing that young people don't have, you know, um, in traditional cultures, a rite of passage was usually this sort of epic nature-based physical challenge, like the, the Maasai tribe, they would, send their young out to hunt a lion with a spear. Um, there's, I mean, the, uh, the Inuit would uh, send young people out uh, to hunt uh, caribou and narwhal and those sort of things out in the, you know, challenging environment. And then they come back and they're better for that. And we don't have that. And I mean, I even think of in your book, there's the scene where you and your buddy are headed into the Bob Marshall wilderness and you've got these pack rafts, right? <laughs> yeah. And you're like going to get across this, uh, this lake or this pond and the weather is just hammering you and it's very clearly dangerous. And, and like your mind is, Man, what the hell are we doing out mm-hmm. here? And then you guys just look at each other and you, and you just smile yeah. eventually because you're like, this is, this is so stupid, but it is so awesome. And that's something, Definite I mean, that's two. something. Yeah, that's something you're never going to forget the rest of your life. Yep. And you mentioned before, it's our days can get very routine. And there is a very good scientific reason for that. It's because we evolved in these harsh, trying, uncomfortable landscapes. If we could predict something, that kept us safe. So our brain wants to keep us in a predictable cycle because that used to help our survival and those genes were passed on. But nowadays we're living in these worlds where it's so predictable and so survivable. I mean, it, it's, it's hard to die now, right? That it's keeping us within these sort of safety nets that lead us to live these lives that when we look back, you know, when we're older, we're not going to have many memories of sitting around watching, you know, the 10th season of Top Chef, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. that sort of stuff. So. Yeah. D- now, d- I'm trying to remember from the reading were there any specific best practices other than making it hard and not dying? Um, as far as like things to think about, if someone's wanting to add this kind of challenge or some kind of event to their life, um, were there any main yeah. big things to think about there? Yeah. So think, I mean, think truly challenging um, to kind of give them a little more detail on what constitutes hard. So if you, let's say you decide you're going to do some crazy outdoor run. Um, if you've, if you're training for that by, you know, running 10 miles one day, 15 miles, and you got this whole training program and you decide you're going to run 50 miles and you do like these training runs up to 30, 40 miles, that's not hard enough because you've, you've trained yourself into the fact that you're not going to fail. Now, if you decided you were going to run 50 miles and you'd never run say 30 before and, but you thought maybe you could do it. Now 40 seemed like a pretty big stretch, but maybe you could do it. But 50, you're like, shit, I really don't know if I could do 50. Well, then that would be hard enough. Like you need to have a real sense that like, I may not, I may not be able to finish this thing. Rule two, don't die. So that means, you know, be safe about this. Take your damn cell phone in case you're like, eh, okay, I need someone to come pick me up or whatever. Um, And then the other ones are that 
you don't want to do something that is very comparable to you're not doing this uh, to compare yourself to others. So, for example, you don't want to be like, oh, well, I don't know. Um, this guy ran a marathon and he did it in this time. So I'm just going to try and do it in a shorter time so I can beat him. So it's like you want to do this for yourself. And you don't want to share this out on social media because this is really just for you. And it's this one thing where you can think back on and just be like, oh, man, I did this weird, quirky thing that I can't compare to anyone else. Like you want to make this 100 percent for you and your own uh, growth and epic stories. And I mean, bring friends along, too. Right. Yeah. Now, were there any uh, tangible like like what was it Mark Elliott or Matt Elliott? Mark? Marcus. Yeah, Marcus Elliott. So when he's pitching this to the athletes he works with or different things like that, like what's the what's the what's the take home? Like if you do this, he's not telling them you're just going to get a good story. He's not telling them you're just going to be better for it. Um was he able to was he able to prove any kind of performance improvement or mental health improvement or anything in a quantifiable way or are we or are we basically saying hey trust me you're gonna feel like a new person after having tackled a challenge like this yeah it's hard to measure right but you know he says and it could be it could be a chicken and egg thing where it's like the guys who decide to do this are already ones who are wired a certain way you don't know um but like the guys that he has do it and you know he named some names uh for me and said don't share them because a lot of these athletes don't want their names out with all this different stuff. But I mean, there's some of the best in the game and a lot of them are known for these clutch performances. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, they sort of get this inner sense of, of confidence because it's like, if you've done these really rad, cool, crazy things that you didn't think you could do, but you came out on the other side of that and did it, that can give you a new gear. You're going to find out a lot about yourself when you're out on those edges sort of exploring what your edges of tolerance are yeah makes a lot of sense uh, another another one of these big discomforts that we've lost in today's day and age is boredom and man as i was reading that about this this uh phenomena i certainly started catching myself doing things so much more often and i, and I realized how few quiet moments are left in life because we've filled them with, with so much distraction. Can you talk a little bit about this, just uh, the epidemic of distraction and lack of boredom and why that's not such a good thing? Yeah. So I started thinking about this cause we're in the Arctic and you know, we're sitting on Hills glassing for caribou all day. And I mean, it took us, took us a while to find, I mean, for any caribou to run through, we're trying to catch them during this migration. Right. And so we'd sit on these hills with like glassing scopes, nothing is happening. And my cell phone doesn't work up there. It's not like I brought a book or a magazine to kill the time. I mean, I'm just sitting there doing nothing. Right. So let's start like reading the labels on my energy bars. I'd start <laughs> reading the tags on my gear, you know, going, Oh, okay. This uh-huh. is 80% down and 20%. Wow. Polyester. Huh? Who knew? Yeah. And, but then eventually, you know, you start, your mind starts to wander and go to these different places. And so I get home and I start to look into this. Uh, and it's so different than life at home, right? Whereas like now when we're bored, we just pull out our cell phone. Like how often do you pull out your cell phone or turn on the TV or whatever, turn on a song or something? Boredom is this, boredom is uncomfortable. And there's a good reason for that. It's an evolutionary discomfort 
that we evolved to have that basically uh, tells us that we are using our time in an inefficient manner. So as we evolved, it would basically kick on any time that we were sitting around because we always needed to be working somehow to gather resources, to get ready for the next you know, storm or whatever it was, it would kick on and be like, hey, you can be, you should be doing something right now. And we'd go out and do something. But now our escape from boredom, it's like I said, it's just your cell phone or whatever it is. So we're not, we're not using it for productive time anymore. We spend 11 hours and six minutes a day on average engaging with digital media. So that's a few hours from our cell phones. We spend like five hours on average watching TV. And then there's, you know, music and all that other stuff. I mean, all this media is not even a hundred years old. Like the radio was invented, I think in the twenties. So we had like, we went from this period of life through all the time we evolved where we would experience these moments of downtime and boredom. And it would often compel us to go do something or think creatively or come up with some new way to improve our lives. Then we invent media. And now it's like when boredom kicks in, it's like, I'm just going to go on YouTube and watch some video, you know, that's not, it's not really improving our lives. And the other thing that's interesting about boredom is a lot of times it will force our mind to go inward. We'll start thinking of ideas about how we can improve our lives. We'll come up with plans. We'll come up with maybe creative ideas. It's like when I was up there in the Arctic, you know, I'd look at nature, I'd I'd notice things that was interesting. And then I'd think, oh, you know, I just came up with an idea for us for a magazine article. I came up with a bunch of different ideas. I wrote some of the book. I did all these different things that were a little more creative. Um, <clears throat> and that's restorative for our brains. Whereas a lot of the media that we use to, today, we're having to look, we're having to focus outwardly. And when your brain is focusing on the outward world, it's actually working uh, very hard. But when we're thinking inwardly, it gives our brain these periods of downtime. It's like these two different modes that scientists uh, talk about. So now that we're on media so much, it's like, one, we're just consuming this stuff that isn't really helping our lives a lot. I mean, unfortunately, most people don't go, you know, I'm bored. I think I'm going to open up the encyclopedia and learn something great. Like most people are just like eh, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, whatever it is. Uh, and then two, because we're focused outwardly so often, it's really burning out our brains. And this is leading to leading to burnout. We have uh, lower ability to focus. Uh, our creativity is dropping. Uh, we have higher rates of anxiety. Like our brains are just burned out. And so by putting ourselves in positions where we can become bored, which is another reason hunting is great, because your cell phone often doesn't work out there and you kind of have to just sit with yourself and be with your thoughts. Um we can not only sort of begin to think on a different wavelength and think about things that would maybe uh, improve our lives, come up with ideas and all these different things, but we're also just reviving our brains, giving our, giving ourselves some downtime. Yeah. So what's the prescription other than going hunting more and uh, making sure your phone's off? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's, so everyone thinks phone and the reason is, I mean, there's good reasons for that. It's because phones are new and phones are always on us and they actively steal our attention. But you, so you see all these, you know, articles that are like how to break up with your phone, why you need to use your phone less. But I really think about it as you just need more boredom in your life. Cause a lot of people will st put down their phone, but then they'll just flip on the TV. It's like your brain doesn't know the damn difference between the two, right? You're still, you're basically doing the same thing. It's just a bigger screen. Yeah. So I tend to think about it as we need more boredom. And for me, very simple ways, 
I'm not suggesting that you need to be bored for hours a day, but for me, really simple ways is like, go for an afternoon stroll without your cell phone and don't bring uh, your ear pods. Have these, have this time where you're just not stimulated by media. A big uh, year long hunt can be good too, where you're not bringing your phone too, right? And just finding ways where you're not going to have that easy, easy access to kill your boredom with some form of digital media or another. I mean, I'll, when I go out and do errands, a lot of times I'll just leave my phone at home. It's like people freak out about that now. It's like, we didn't even have cell phones 10 years ago. We're going to be fine. You know, just having these times where you're not stimulated and you're put in a position to be inside your own head. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy that this is one of those things that, at least for me, you don't even realize it. But while I was reading this, it it gave me a new sense of self-awareness. And I started realizing that I have filled every nook and cranny of my day with some kind of information intake. If if I'm not chasing my kids in or working, if I'm not doing those two things that take up a huge part of my life, all the rest of the time, I'm consuming something. Like when I'm showering, I put on a podcast. When I'm totally. going for a run, I'm listening to an audiobook or a podcast. When I drive to the store, I've got something playing. Shit, even now, when I go to the grocery store, I put earbuds on and I listen to stuff when I'm in the grocery store. Uh, yeah. and, I, and I realized, wow, like I'm leaving no gaps at all to just think about stuff, to just let my mind wander. And, and like you said, the science is showing that you need that empty space to, to, to be creative, to be, uh, to do so many things. I mean, it's, uh, it was, it was an eye opener for me. And so I've actively been trying and I still have this tendency because I'm just, I'm a voracious learner. I just want to learn, learn, learn. I want to know more about that. I want to know more about that. So I'm constantly trying to consume stuff, but I have to like check myself. So some mornings when I go for my run, I'll be like, ah, I can't find a podcast. I want, I don't like this one. Don't like this one. And then I'll catch it. And I'll be, Oh, that's a great sign. You, you don't need to listen to anything. Just, just run and think. And, uh, and that's been a good thing, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally the same way. It's a battle. I mean, what we need to realize is we have these evolutionary impulses, one. But number two, I mean, there are entire billion-dollar companies where people with PhDs sit around all day and think, how can I make this cell phone app more addictive to people? How can I get people to engage with it more time, a more time of their day? And it's like, you know, I know for myself, morons like me, it is a battle to fight against these amazingly engineered apps. But it's, you know, it's one we got to fight because I think, like I said, when you look at the data and how it's affecting people, uh, we need those periods of downtime. So it's that's why I do that's why I do the force thing. It's like I don't even want my cell phone on me because I know that my brain is just going to default to grabbing it if it's yeah. just nowhere. And if I can put myself out of the house where there's not screens and stuff, it's like I'm forced into boredom. Yeah. Yeah. So much of this, so much of this is, is preempting the impulse. So when you're, when your mental state is strong, it's like the same thing with trying to eat healthy. At least for me, if I just have like junk food around the house, then it's going to catch me at moments when I'm vulnerable and it's there and I'm going to eat it because I had a bad day at work or something happened, whatever. And then, ah, that'll make me feel really good in the moment. And then you eat it. But if you can be strong in those moments of strength and say, you know what, I want to be a healthier person. I know that it's going to be hard for me in moments of vulnerability. So instead of just having this stuff around, 
when you go to the grocery store, I'm not going to buy any junk food. I'm not going to keep this stuff in the house. If my grandma comes by and brings a dozen cookies, don't tell her, but I'm going to throw them in the trash afterwards because I know that I'll eat them if I let them stay here. It's like those types of things have to be applied to, you know, preserving pockets of boredom so or pockets of focus. You know, there's this idea of deep work um, that the same things that are challenging that you're describing here also make it really hard to do good work because we're constantly checking our phones. We're constantly checking email. So I've had to, you know, I'm sure you had this when you're writing this book um, to get my book done, to get any of like the work that I need to get deep into it. I have to put my phone literally on the other side of the room. I have to shut down the browser window. I sometimes will set a timer on my phone and say, all right, for the next 30 minutes, no, nothing. Like every time you have this impulse to be like, oh, this is hard. I want to just look at ESPN or ah, that this sucks. Why don't I just see what's on my phone? Like instead of that, I cannot do anything but focus for the next 30 minutes. And then that alarm goes off and I'm like, okay, I can feel like I got solid 30 minutes done. Now I can take a break. Um, it's like those weird little things that you need to create. And maybe this isn't for everybody. Maybe I'm just weird, but I need to create um, I don't know, frames to, to work within, to make myself effective. And I think the same applies to, to staying bored, keep your phone away, keep the notifications off. Maybe you don't need the Facebook app on your phone. Maybe you don't need to take, you know, your phone with you on the hike. Um, maybe you don't need to take it on your hunt. Uh, that's, that's something in the hunting world where lots of times you don't have service, but if you live in a place with service, you have the same temptation. You're sitting out there and you should be enjoying nature and watching what's around you and paying attention. But if there's nothing actually happening at that moment, I, I've certainly been guilty of yanking it out too. So yeah. Yeah. 100%. Uh, 100%. Pay attention here. Cause this is a hell of a good service. It's called the wellness company. Picture this. Okay. You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested. You got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options. Like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work. Try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months. Wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks. Or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits is not a first aid kit. All right, It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor, no waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater and use promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust Resistant Griddle. Now, this, this is a good innovation here and it solves a real problem, okay? So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools, like a griddle on your grill. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. There's no use of coatings, okay? You can use metal tools to flip, press, and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready 
not rusty. Now, everything, the problem with griddles, everything rusts. No one talks about how bad everything rusts. Uh, the reason they don't is because they couldn't fix it until now. Well, Weber's new rust-resistant technology, your Weber grill will last for years. When used, the carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, reducing the ability for moisture to collect and rust to form. With the new Weber Works Prep Cook and Store System, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. You you talk about something that, again, a lot of us would just say like, oh yeah, I've experienced this. But now the science is backing it up in a really substantial way, and it's pretty cool. And that is the value of being outside. Um. I think, mm-hmm. gosh, over, after the last year, after COVID, people are really starting to see this that maybe previously hadn't. Um, can you talk about this new um, wave of studies and science that's pointing to actual quantifiable benefits of being outside and, quote unquote, forced bathing and stuff like that? Yeah, for sure. And I'll tell you what also made me sort of really realize this. We... um when we were in the Arctic, we had seen this uh, herd of caribou and there was a, there was an old bull in there. So we, you know, stock it out for like five, 10 miles or something. And um, anyways, it skunks us and we have this walk home. So we, you know, hike back across the tundra to our uh, campsite where we have this kafaru teepee or whatever. And that comes into sight and there's a herd like literally in our camp and we kind of look at it and, you know, there's, it's all, um, it's all, uh, younger caribou. And so we're like, okay, whatever. And I'm there with, uh, Donnie Vincent and his cameraman, William Altman, who's a, who's a great dude too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so William's like, okay, I'm going to go get some footage of this, you know, cause Donnie, if you guys have seen his films, it's not just hunting. I mean, it's almost like a, it's a nature documentary yeah. like planet earth that happens to have some hunting in it, you yeah. know? So William goes out and um, he's crawling across the ground and getting these shots and he rises and he ends up spooking this herd. And Donnie and I are just laying on the tundra sort of observing from afar. And this herd gets spooked, I mean, directly at us, towards us. So they start charging in and it's like, oh my God, like they're headed right at us. And we're just laying on the ground, you know, they have no idea we're there. And, you know, I'd say before this trip, like I was an, I'm an outdoorsy person. I always have been, I'm an Eagle Scout. But I'm also, you know, I'm in my 30s. Like, this is a key period for work and stuff. Like, it's hard to get out in nature a ton. And I never really embedded myself deeply in nature for that long. And, you know, I don't think that I'm that different than anyone else. I know when you look at the data now, it's people spend 93% of their time indoors. We're chained to our desk. Um, I love there. There's a stat that you had in your book that 95% of Yellowstone visitors uh, never leave side of a road. Mm, yeah. That estimate, you know. Yep. So we just don't spend that much time in nature, and I think part of it is it's because nature is uncomfortable and it's unpredictable. And so, anyways, we're <laughs> we're laying there, and this herd keeps closing in. I mean, they get close enough that the ground starts to rumble and Donnie and I are just locked on them. And then they get close enough that, you know, they're 75 yards. You can start to smell them, see their hooves kicking up the earth. And, and, um, you know, at a certain point it occurs to me, 
And they're like 50 yards out, like, oh, wait, are they, are they going to trample us right now? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and um, probably 30 yards out, they like they careen left and like the earth shakes as they go by and they go up to this like pinnacle of this hill and you can just see them that are like black against this, you know, golden sunset. And it was one of those moments where you're just like, holy shit. Like it was the most unbelievable moment was, in the book. I describe it as like wild as a religious experience where, mm. you know, you kind of feel like you're part of something bigger in times like that. And, you know, it got me thinking about how we don't have moments like that anymore. And people spend so little time in uh, nature and we're all anxious. We have, uh, you know, depression and anxiety are through the roof. People are, are burned out. You look at the data and it's like, we're the most anxious people who've ever walked the earth. Uh, but when I, after having been up in Alaska for so long, like you would think with all this discomfort I was going through with, you know, encountering grizzly bears, having to, everything required effort, um, crossing, you know, these rivers and being freezing the whole time. You'd think I'd be like stressed out and just totally on edge the opposite was true. It was like the most Zen I've ever felt in my entire life, just super calm, super centered, super focused. And so I wanted to know, you know, what, what is going on with that? I get home and I start looking at the research and a while ago, uh, there's a biologist, famous biologist named uh, EO Wilson. And he had this theory called the biophilia hypothesis that basically states, you know, humans evolved in nature and therefore nature is this thing we need to be happy and healthy. Like it's a, it's a part of our lives. We, we, we are part of it, but we've removed ourselves. And by going back out into nature, we can experience these benefits, mm -hmm. especially mental health benefits. And when he proposed this, most people at the time, other scientists thought it was just a crock of shit. Basically, they were like, any benefits that people get from nature are probably just because they're hiking out in nature or they're, you know, going on a run or something in nature. And um, then the Japanese started uh, studying this. So the government created this, uh, a bunch of parks around the country and started promoting this idea that they called forest bathing, which is sort of hilarious, but it's basically just the idea of like spend time in nature, hang out there, you'll see some benefits. So a bunch of Japanese scientists started to see if this program, which was funded by taxes, had any real benefits for people. And they found that people who spend more time in nature, they're calmer. They generally have better health markers. And if you put people in nature, even for just like five, 10, 20 minutes, they emerge better off. Like they're a lot, they are calmer, less stress, anxiety levels go down, cortisol levels go down. So they really established this as like a thing worth chasing. And you know, we had, we sort of intuitively know this, but they gave us data and the data has only been growing since there. This was like in the eighties. So to, to learn more about this, I go to Boston, flying to Boston. I meet with this uh, girl who's a nature scientist and she's helped develop this idea that's called the nature pyramid. So this is very much like the food pyramid, but instead of saying, you know, eat this many servings of broccoli and eat this many servings of meat every day. It basically tells you how long you should spend in what type of nature, how often. So at the bottom of the pyramid, um, the research shows you should spend about 20 minutes a week in just everyday nature, like you could find in a park, like a city park. Three times, three times a week, 20 minutes, 
and it helps with your calmness. It helps people um, mental acuity and sharpness. It also boosts creativity and lower stress levels. Um, so that's the bottom of the pyramid they found. And then the second level up the pyramid is uh, five hours a month in wilder nature. So this is the type of stuff you might find in a state park. This is you know, stuff that you might have to drive for. Um, it's not as manicured as a city park, um, but it's also not super far to get there. You probably still have, have cell service. And we know this is the ideal amount of time from a bunch of research that has been conducted in uh, Finland. So people in Finland go outside a ton and they surveyed a bunch of people in the country and the people who were least likely to be depressed and also reported the lowest levels of chronic stress spent uh, five or more hours a week in this type of sort of country nature, I call it in the book. Um, the very top of the pyramid, and this is, I think, what's what's most fascinating to me and will be most fascinating to people who spend, who do, you know, overnight and extended hunts and do, you know, any sort of backpacking trips, is uh, the top is three days a year you should spend in the backcountry. So this leads to pretty crazy uh, brain changes where people's brains start producing what are called alpha waves. Now, these are the same brain waves that are found in experienced meditators, like the yogis who live in the caves, you know. Mm. Um, so spending this three days or more out in very off the grid nature where your phone doesn't work, there's, you know, no road you have to hike in. It's kind of like a meditation retreat, except, you know, you can talk to other people and there's no costs and there's no gurus telling you what to do. Yeah. And um, it's also associated with just crazy boosts in creativity, um, PTSD levels. They've done studies where they've taken vets into nature for this amount of time and their PTSD levels drop and they stay low for a very long time. Um, just sort of resets and revives uh, your thinking and just makes us a lot more calmer and think on a different wavelength. And I think this is, you know, this lady I meet in Boston, I mean, she sees, she really sees time, these different amounts of time in nature as a way to combat the modern condition where we're just like overstressed, overworked, overworried about everyday BS and cheap, easy and free. Right. And there's probably a lot of reasons that nature has this effect. I mean, the fact that we're, that we are away from our desk um, there's different sounds that seem to benefit us in nature. There's this idea of biophilia, like I talked about before. There's also fewer people that seems to help. There's also, uh, fractals, which are these repeating patterns that you see over and over in the universe that you don't get in, um, man-made structures. Those seem to like speak to us at this core level. Hmm. And so I think, I think that's why hunting is so great too, because you are really, really removed. I mean, most people aren't hunting right on a trail, right? It's like you, you got to go deep in the woods to, uh, to get something. So I don't know. It's uh it's fascinating research. And I work that into my own life by, I live just outside the desert. So I'll go run in the desert at least a couple times a week. Yeah. So. Yeah, man. It, um, it, it, it really is interesting to see the science backing up, you know, those types of, those types of experiences and, and it just helps put words and numbers to a feeling that I think a lot of us have had. And, and for some reason, seeing that verified uh, just makes it seem, you know, that much more satisfying to know, like, okay, yeah, you know, these things I've been doing, these trips I've been planning, um, these excursions that I'm telling my 
boss that I need some time to go do, like it's, it's worth it. It's, it's, it's really helping. It makes a difference. Um, and you mentioned there that, that top of the pyramid, those, you know, at least three days, once a year, you talk about something called the three day effect in the book Mm -hmm. and how after that three day level, something unique happens that maybe day one, day two doesn't. Um, I've definitely felt this too. Can you, can you talk about that? Yeah. So that three day effect, it was, a. it has an interesting history. So there's this, uh, fascinating rare bookstore in Salt Lake city owned by this guy named Ken Sanders. And he's sort of this icon in Salt Lake city. And he used to hang out with, uh, Edward Abbey and go on trips with Abbey, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners would be mm-hmm. familiar with. And he just noticed that on the third day that he would spend out in the wild, um, he would start to feel a lot calmer, uh, just start to feel a lot different, more at ease, more like, you know, like he's, he feels good about himself, you know? And he mentions this to a guy whose name is David Strayer, who is a neuroscientist at the University of Utah. And Strayer is probably the world's foremost expert on how cell phones affect the brain and our attention. And he's also a hardcore nature junkie. Like he'll go and spend a long time out in the wild. And he was like, oh, yeah, I feel that too. And he'd had conversations with people who also said the same thing. And these are conversations with colleagues who were, you know, these PhD wielding people who love data and numbers and figures. They're saying like, yeah, there's no data on it, but I don't know. I just feel different. And Strayer starts uh, investigating it with the girl that I met in Boston. And this is where they would take people down to, to sort of figure out what was going on. They would take people uh, down to this campground. It was actually a class. Uh, so these are like 20 year old college students to this campground in Southern Utah. That's super remote no cell phone service or any of that. And this is where they learned that the reason is probably because your brain starts to ride these alpha waves, which are a lot um, slower, more meditative and introspective compared to uh, beta waves, which are the waves that we tend to ride in our daily life that are like frenetic, go, 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 really scattered. So it's that transition. For some reason on day three, your brain just starts to, to change and shift and you get these uh, awesome waves that are, that are very good for us. And it just takes enough, you know, completely enough time removed from those distractions. It, it takes that much time for our, for our internal selves to, to settle into that place. sounds like. Yeah. So they, you know, on your first, you think about it when you go out into, if you go camping for a handful of days, it's like the first day you're going, Oh, did I leave the garage open? Um, yeah. Shit, am I going to have too many emails when I get home? And all like you're the still setup, kinda... all the stress of getting ready, getting settled yeah. in, figuring out what you're doing. Totally. Second day, you're a little bit calmer, but you're still there. But then by the third day, something clicks where you're just a lot calmer. Yeah. Now, one of the most fascinating things about all this nature research, and this goes from the bottom of the pyramid, 20 minutes a day, uh, three days a week to the very top, is if you use your cell phone it cancels a lot of these benefits because you are dragging yourself back into uh, you're dragging yourself out of the ability to get into those alpha waves that I mentioned. And you're also just putting yourself back in this, this grind of home, right? You're not folk. You're not looking at the nature around you. You're staring at a screen and you could look at a screen, any damn place in the country at any time. It's like, if you're going to be in nature, enjoy the nature, man, put your phone down. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh 
that's easier said than done. It, it is. That's the one that throughout all these things, that's, that's always my hardest one that I'm just trying to, trying to find the ways to, to make my stupid monkey brain cooperate with what I know what's right. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's like in your book, you talk about all the people who have, you know, helped us preserve nature in the U S it's like all these people really knew this mm-hmm. to their core, right? Yeah. They knew this. And so they acted on it. And only now a hundred years later, whatever it is, are we having the data to back this up? Like, damn, yeah. John Muir, Thoreau, Leopold, Bob Marshall, all these guys, they knew in advance what was going on and they acted on this without having all needing all this data. And man, we're lucky for it. Right. Yeah. Thank goodness. And, and you would think that now that we do have all this data, it should make, uh, it should make our, our work to, to keep these places around that much easier. Folks should listen because there's quantifiable benefits to it, but you know, sometimes that doesn't hold up as much as you'd like. But I do think, I do think that this wave of new research around it is going to, is going to lead to, you know, just another feather in the cap of the importance of having wild open places, having parks, having public lands, having green spaces in cities. I, I think, you know, we we live in a civilization and a uh, capitalistic society that, that thrives off data. We want data to prove everything. And, and so now we've got it on this front, and I'm glad it uh, is in line with what I have, have felt, felt and wanted, right? Yeah, amen. Yeah. So what about the next one, which is hunger? This is one that, that I wouldn't have made if I was looking at like the title of this book and I, I could have predicted a few of these. I think hunger wasn't one of the wasn't one of the topics that I would have jumped on right away. Mm-hmm. Um what what'd you learn on that front? Why do we need to embrace hunger a little bit more than maybe we have historically? Sure. So when we were out in the Arctic, I mean we packed in you know, maybe two thousand calories a day and you know, garbage, mountain house meals and Snickers and that kind of crap. Um, but because we're carrying these heavy packs on our back and walking through the the tundra, which is the worst thing you could ever walk on. I mean, it is so hard (laughs) (laughs) to walk on. Um, we're burning way more than that. I mean, probably four to 6,000 calories a day. So every single day we're starting to tap into our reserves and starting to lose weight. I mean, I started to pull notches on my belt after, you know, about a week. And it was interesting because in the modern world, we're not like, I hadn't experienced that type of hunger ever, which is a good, which is a good thing. I'm not saying it's bad, but it was just this new, new sensation. I was like, man, like I've never really, never really felt this. So I get home and I I look at the data and it shows that 80% 80% of the times that we eat nowadays are not driven by real physiological hunger. It's usually we just eat because it's, you know, morning and this is when we eat breakfast or this is when we eat lunch, dinner, or because we're stressed or because we're sad or because we're just bored and it's like, okay, I'll eat something. So in a lot of ways, because of our success as a species that we have food everywhere, we're now using food as sort of a widget. And there are there are neurological reasons for that. You know, as we evolved, our bodies evolved to essentially reward us for any and all kind of eating. And it also rewarded us for eating too much because back when resources were scarce, if you could eat too much and you could put on fat, well, next time a famine came around, which was often back then, you would have enough fat resources on your body to draw from and you would be able to survive. So we are internally incentivized to eat too much, 
too often. And now we're surrounded in this sea of food that's all, you know, formulated, ultra processed. And we tend to think that, you know, hunger is bad in the modern world. It's like people panic around hunger. And all of this comes together and can explain why 70% of our country is either overweight or obese. It's that we have these internal drives to eat all the time and eat too much. And now we're surrounding ourselves uh, in food. And you know, millions to combat this, it's like millions of people try to diet each year. And there's all kinds of diets out there that sort of tell you, you know, eat this, not that. Or it's like sugar is the reason you're fat. Stop eating sugar. Uh, fat is the reason you're fat. Stop eating fat. No, it's actually carbs is the reason you're fat. Stop at, or is your fat. Stop eating carbs, you know. Um, and most of these diets fail. You look at uh, diets, I think only, I think 95% of people who lose any weight in a year, they gain it back. Which is, which is unfortunate. And in a lot of these diets, it's like a key claim is, is no hunger. So I'm thinking about this. And when I get back from Alaska, I'm 10 pounds lighter. Um, and I'm also eating like all the foods that the diets tell you never to eat. Right. I mean, this stuff is like ultra processed garbage. I mean, it is just a horse shit food. And um, <laughs> no, no dietitian is prescribing mountain house meals for their clients. That's for sure. <laughs> God, I hope not. Um, <laughs> Two yeah. million grams of salt. Yeah. Yeah. Enough salt to, uh, to like petrify someone from uh-huh. the inside out. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm 10 pounds lighter. And, you know, through my work, I had, uh, I had met this kid whose name is Trevor Cashy. And to say that Trevor is smart is a lot like saying LeBron James is pretty good at basketball. <laughs> um, this kid is like a super genius. I think he's 27 or 28. Now he graduated college at 18. He got his PhD at 23. Uh, he studied chemical biology. So this is like the, this is provides a foundation for understanding, uh, human metabolism. And he sort of got into, he sort of stumbled into working with people to help them lose weight. Now he's worked with athletes, gold medal winning athletes, uh, UFC fighters, ultra marathoners, all these different people. And he approaches it really differently than I think you see a lot in the diet world approach it. And he sort of starts with hunger. So you look back at that figure, I told you that 80% of the time we eat, it's not because we're actually hungry. It's just because we're using food as a mechanism for, for something else to deal with something else. So he doesn't actually care why you eat or sorry, I misstated that he doesn't care what you eat. He cares why you eat. So a lot of his method is building awareness about why people are eating, whether it's true physiological hunger or they're just using food as something else. And a lot of it is increasing awareness of just how much people eat because we have these past past drives that are telling us, hey, eat a little more, eat too much, but we eat more than we actually need to in order to be healthy. So part of what he does is he has people like very closely track exactly what they're eating. And now this sounds strange, but at the same time, when you look at the research, people totally uh, underestimate the amount they eat every day. So when they pull people, it's like, how many calories did you think you ate? You know, people will be like, ah, 2,500. They'll have eaten like 3,000 or 3,500. Mm-hmm. And over time, this compounds, and this is this can kind of explain why we are so... Uh, out of shape now. And this is, uh, I mean, this is kind of one of the main drivers of a lot of chronic disease, just the fact that so many people in the country uh, are overweight now. So sort of by 
figuring out why you are eating, whether that is real hungry, hunger, and then engaging with hunger, realizing that it sucks, but it's not going to kill you. And it's actually a necessary part of being healthy. You're going to be able to maintain a weight that's going to keep you healthy and you're just going to be healthier overall across your lifespan. So if you're a, if you're a guy or girl out there who's listening and you're wanting to live a healthier lifestyle, which, which a lot of people in our community, I think are, you know, wanting to do that, especially if hunting and and the outdoors is a big part of their life. If they're not already in, you know, uh, great physical shape, it's something that a lot of folks want to work towards because that helps you a lot in all these endeavors. Um, so what's like your big, what's one of your big takeaways from your deep dive into this world? You know, it, when I get that feeling like, oh, I'm feeling hungry. Um, and you're saying we should embrace it a little bit more. Like what's, what's an action item we should be thinking about that's going to help us a little bit more on that front. Sure. Well, I think, I think one thing is thinking about what foods we eat now at the end of the day, being at a healthy weight is all driven by, are you eating enough energy to fuel your body and what you want to do, but not vastly overeating that amount? You know, it's essentially, it's physics, it's calories in calories out, despite what all these diet books tell you about, you know, there being a super villain among foods. Um, but that said, certain foods will help you feel fuller longer and fend off hunger. And those foods just so happen to be the foods that man evolved to eat. These are, you know, meat, potatoes, uh, grains that we have to cook beforehand. These are all things that help people stay fuller longer. And this is not a diet that's, you know, high carb or low carb or high fat or low fat or high protein. It's just like the food that your great, great grandparents ate. I mean, there's a reason why no one in the generations before, I think the obesity rate in the year 1900 was like one or 2%. Hmm. And now it's 33. And it's because people are eating just basic foods and not overeating them. They help curb hunger. But in terms of re-engaging with hunger, I mean, I think something that people can do is even try, like, are you actually hungry when you wake up and eat breakfast? Like, can you extend that? What happens? What does that feel like? You know, sort of just putting these, just experimenting with like, well, well, why am I eating? And noticing, you know, you mentioned before, it's like when your grandma brings over those cookies, it's like, you're just going to eat them because they're there. Mm-hmm. You know, so if that's a temptation for you, uh, removing them, that's not saying, that's not to say you can't eat those foods. It's totally fine, but maybe have one or two, and then throw them away if, if that's a trigger, you know, and this is, this is hard. If this shit were easy, people wouldn't be overweight. But it's it's necessary, right? It's like yeah. when you when you look at how we're trending and the, and um, they do forecasts on this, and they think that um, I think the CDC thinks that overweight and obesity rate is going to be in the 80s uh, by 2030. So, wow, man, it's something we got to tackle. I mean, and and I think we've really this has really hit home during the pandemic. It's you know you look at the research and it's like the people who had who got COVID and had some of the worst symptoms, right? Being being obese was a major risk factor for complications. And, you know, through my other work, like I had a conversation with someone at the CDC about a month ago, and usually they're pretty hands-off. Like they don't want to tell people, hey, you got to get in shape because, you know, people don't like hearing that. So they've never really said anything like that to me. But this time the lady was like, people need to go to the gym. <laughs> I was like, wow, wow okay. yeah. coming from the government. So interesting. Yeah, it's um it definitely was a little bit of a 
self-perpetuating cycle too with the whole COVID deal, uh, probably not on a large enough scale, but as you, I think you mentioned in your book, and I think a lot of us experienced it, there was like the COVID-15. A lot of mm-hmm. folks, you know, I, I certainly experienced that when we first had the lockdown start and everything shuts down and your life changes and couldn't do anything. And all of a sudden it was like, well, what are we going to do that's exciting this weekend? Let's make chocolate mug cakes. And uh, <laughs> it was that kind of stuff that I'm sure a lot of people uh, packed on some extra weight because they were you know, just in this weird, weird situation. So, yeah. Uh, and also food gets used a lot to deal with stress. And right. because of all these other things we've talked about, I think people have uh, more stress than we have in the past for a lot of reasons. And food is just an easy way to deal with that. It's kind of like cheap, always available Xanax. Yeah. And so, yeah. And it, that, that would explain it because the pandemic was freaking stressful. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, so let's, let's skip to, we're going to change a little order of your book here, but it's the natural, I think, next question when we're talking about health, at least. We've talked mm-hmm. about the food we eat, but then, of course, you know, just exercise. You mentioned exercise is uncomfortable. Physical activity, in a lot of ways, can be uncomfortable. In You know, long endurance events, things that push you are uncomfortable. Um, but as has been the case with all these things, these discomforts do have benefits, too, Um what about on, on this front did you find most interesting and most eye-opening? Because a lot of this stuff I think is like, yeah, we know this stuff. But I think you uncovered some interesting things here. Yeah, I would say most interesting to not, you know, we all know that exercise is good for us. Um, the data is, I mean, the data is really fascinating. And it could just be because I'm a freaking nerd. But you look at it and uh, fitness is like the number one way to avoid the top killers of humans now. I mean, full stop. Um, but I think what I found personally most interesting when I was up in Alaska, it's like everything takes effort, right? It's like every single thing you do takes some sort of effort. You go back into the modern world and you're like, oh my God, like nothing takes effort. I mean, when we're in the Arctic, it's like even getting water, you, we have to hike down to the freaking river, which is, you know, we saw a grizzly there earlier in the day. So you're on edge and then you have to hike this you know, bag of water back up that's 30, 40 pounds, whatever it weighs. And that's just for water. I mean, even like going out to the bathroom, you know, that takes effort. Um, but I would say the absolute hardest thing that I did in Alaska was the pack out of uh, the, the animal. Mm-hmm. And it was 100 pounds or so on, our, on my pack. And we had five miles to go all uphill sort of uh, karma right there <laughs> back to camp. And, you know, my background being at men's health and outside, like I've been, my, my job has forced me to do a lot of physical things. Now I'm not saying that I'm like the world's best athlete. At the end of the day, I'm a gangly writer who sits at a desk most of the day. <laughs> You're preaching to the choir but, right here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like, I've done some stuff, you know, and it was just the hardest thing I've ever done. And what's so interesting is, I mean, that was life for our ancestors a couple hundred years ago, 300 years ago. What I mean, for all of time, right? Yeah. You look at, you look at uh, cultures who are still hunter-gatherers, they are 14 times more physically active than us. We've engineered activity out of our life in every way. What I thought was interesting, though, is I traveled to Harvard to talk to a guy whose name is uh, Daniel Lieberman, and he is an anthropologist there. And he, in 2004, he did this study where he basically found that 
the reason the human body is built the way it is is so we could hunt. We would run animals down for miles and miles at a time and spear them. And essentially, we are really good at uh, long, slow endurance events. We're we're terrible athletes in terms of like moving fast, like sprinting and and lifting heavy things, but we're really good at running long, slow distances in the heat. And so that's how we would hunt. We would do a thing called persistence hunting. Most animals are really inefficient at cooling themselves because they pant to release heat. Mm -hmm. So we would run these animals down, say a mile, uh, it would sprint and whatever, uh, get farther away from us. Then we track it and then we'd bump it again. And eventually after doing this over 10, 15, 20 miles, the animal would finally just overheat and we would spear it. And then uh, what we would do next, though, is carry it back to camp. And that's something that his paper didn't talk about. And so that's what I wanted to talk to him about. And I went up to his lab and we talked a bit about how we evolved to run. I mean, it, it explains why we have these long legs and why we sweat, why we don't have a lot of fur on our bodies. Um, but then I asked him about carrying, because once we kill an animal, it's like you got to carry it back to camp. Or if the animal is just too heavy to carry, you got to carry camp to the animal. And um, he was studying that right at that moment. He was like, oh, it's funny you say that. I just started researching this, you know, like, oh, man, crazy. And um, carrying explains why we have really strong hands relative to the rest of our bodies, why our torsos are generally short. And we are the only animals that can carry efficiently. There's no other animals that can carry stuff and move it from point A to point B. So uh, I argue, and Lieberman would also argue, that the acts of uh, running and carrying are very unique to humans. It's what we evolved to be physically good at. And they are sort of uniquely beneficial for us from an exercise standpoint. Now, everyone, a lot of people run right? It's like we see runners on the street all the time, but how often do you see people just like carrying heavy shit for the act of exercise to improve themselves, you know? Not too often. Not too often, unless you happen to be a hunter. Yep. And in that if case... You, if you live in my neighborhood, you've seen a weird dude at 5.30 in the morning doing it with a headlamp, but otherwise... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So in the book, I investigate carrying and how it's this this physical act that really was lost to time that we haven't flowed back in our days like we have running and how it is uniquely good for us. So there's only one real group who has uh, who's floated back into how they train and it's helped them become the fittest people on earth and that is special forces soldiers. So they call it rucking, basically a weighted backpack. Um, marching with a weighted backpack is like the main form of training in the military, military guys are always carrying a weighted pack with, you know, ammo, supplies, that sort of stuff. And I know a guy, I met a guy named, whose name is Jason McCarthy, and he owns a company called GoRuck. And they are trying to bring, they've made um, sort of military spec backpacks that can hold a lot of weight. And they're trying to bring this idea of, of rucking or hiking with a weighted pack to the masses. And they've actually teamed up with this these two researchers at the Mayo Clinic who are starting to flow this in with their patients. Like when patients come in with heart problems, they don't tell them to, you know, start lifting weights or to start running. They say, Hey, walk when that feels good. 
I want you to add a weighted backpack because it has, you're not only working your endurance, but you're also working your strength. And each of those two components are essential for uh, physical health, but also from a performance standpoint, especially when it comes to hunting. I mean, that is the foundation of, of hunting, right? It's like you have to hike into these areas with heavy stuff on your back. And if you're successful in your hunt, you're going to be hiking with a lot of meat back. Yeah. And so I think it's really interesting that modern hunting, it's the one thing that brings back this, you know, sort of primal form of exercise that we've yeah. really lost. Yeah. And, and it's funny. It's, it is, if you, if you were to pull the majority of folks that are pretty serious in the backcountry hunting world and do this stuff frequently. Like that's, that's the thing. There's always the temptation, just like anything else in physical fitness where people want to, you know, do the glamor exercises and make those great big pecs and biceps and all that stuff. But you talk to the folks that, that really do this stuff. It's man, hike with a heavy pack and do it a lot and do it at elevation. And like, that's, it's not sexy. It's not fancy. Uh, it's not going to get you on the cover of a magazine maybe, but it just does the trick. It's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's what you need for this activity. And it's really interesting that what you found is that it's not only what you need to be a good backcountry hunter, it's what you need to just be a healthy, fully actualized human being because of how we evolved that, that is fascinating. Yeah. And so there's a lot of the military, uh, the military is obviously invested in knowing about, carrying loads because it's what their soldiers do and they want to reduce injury rates. And they've basically found that any load up to about 50 pounds is pretty safe. Once you start going over 50 in training, you can, it increases your risk of injury enough that you might want to dial back. So in the book, I talk about like, you know, probably for the average guy, it's like between 30 and 50 pounds is a sweet spot. Um, if you're smaller, if you're a a female, probably between like 20 and 30 is probably a sweet spot. Um, but man, you get so many benefits off of that. And to your point about, you know, show muscles, I was talking to a guide when I was up in Alaska and he talked about, he's had clients, you know, send them photos from the gym and they're, you know, bodybuilding and they just look amazing. And they'll text and be like, Hey, you know, 311 more days to the hunt, I'm getting ready. And those guys will get out there and get a heavy pack on. And they're just like, Oh my God, like I can't do this. And they'll quit because it's the, the training hasn't been right. You know, it's like a lot of times in my mind, I think that a lot of what we do in the gym, it is obviously good for us and that it helps our heart and that it has these benefits but I don't think it's optimal more or less. Yeah. Uh, so since you do a lot of this, um, at least I think you have looked into some of these things when it comes to optimizing your physical fitness, uh, plans and regimens and and through this research you've done, talk to me a little bit about, and this is 100% selfish because I'm trying to figure this out for myself right now. (laughs) Um, (laughs) balancing these, physical endurance and, and exercise type periods with rest. So, you know, you know, I've gotten to a sweet spot where I do a daily run every morning. I start my day with a run and it feels great. I get that runner's high and it might be miserable in the moment sometimes, but I'm always glad I did it. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm trying to ramp that up more and more and, and now realizing the need like to have rest periods. And I think, I think, uh, gosh, what's his name? Another writer for outside um, has talked to, he wrote peak performance, uh, they, they talked oh, about yeah. this, uh, the, 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 the formula for growth is stress plus rest. So you have to apply a stress to 
to get growth, but then you need that rest period to allow the growth to happen. And this this could apply to mental growth or, in this case, physical um, fitness. So you need the stress of that run or that rocking or whatever, but you also need some kind of rest period to allow your body to regenerate. Um, could you balance something like long distance running and rucking every other day, that kind of thing? Is that getting you rest because you're changing the type of stress? Or do you think that you really need, you know, full, no questions asked rest where you do nothing or you switch to a totally different type of exercise? Um, I, that might be outside of this conversation, but it just popped in my head. <laughs> no, no. And I think there's, I mean, a lot of, there's a lot of different ways to view this and different people would might view it differently. But I think generally from my work, I've noticed that most people will recommend at least one day of dedicated rest a week. And I don't mean like sit on the couch and smash Funyuns all day, but like, you know, you're, you're not working out that day. You go for a walk. That's totally fine. Walks can be restorative. Uh, I do think it's good to mix up um, day to day the type of exercise you're doing. So, you know, if you were to go for a long run on Monday, maybe don't go for a long run on Tuesday or make it shorter or throw in strength work. I mean, we know that as humans evolve, they were doing um, endurance is what we, I think, really evolved for. Most anthropologists would argue. So it's sort of uniquely good for us. Um, we didn't evolve to be that strong. But that doesn't mean that strength training isn't good for us and can't actually help us be better at our endurance work and also be more, uh, I guess I would say, resistant to injury when we're out in the field. Um, also, movement is important. Nowadays, we sit in chairs uh, on desks all day. We're slumped over keyboards and our movement patterns are not what they used to be. I mean, you go to countries that are a little more uncomfortable and it's like everyone can perfectly sit in the squat for as long as they want. It's like you test the average American, the average American can't squat because we've just, we're so adapted to chairs. So thinking, so I sort of see the three pillars as endurance, strength, and the ability to move. I mean, I can tell you in my own, um, training for this kind of stuff, I'll maybe lift weights and not like bodybuilding style, more more working the patterns that the body was built to do things like, uh, squats, you know, overhead presses, um, planks, carrying heavy weights, you know, two times a week. Um, I'll do an endurance. We, I'll maybe go for two runs, one pretty long, and then I'll usually rock a day or two. And then I'll have a day that's just dedicated to movement. And before every workout, I'll just make sure that I'm moving in the right way by doing a handful of different stretches. And so I think, thinking about your, yourself in terms of like, how can I have as much uh, exercise variability where I'm doing a lot of different things is going to help you be more robust yeah. instead of just focusing on, on one thing. When you go down one rabbit hole, um, you can obviously get very good at that. You look at professional runners. I mean, like a marathon runner, all they do is run, but they're going for that. But that's not necessarily healthy or good for the average person, right? They're basically giving up health in order to be a sort of freak at this one end of the spectrum. Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, I guess that brings us to the final themes in your book, which is, um, again, right in line with something that I think every hunter has had to confront, which is getting comfortable with, with mortality, with death. Um, whether that be your own or otherwise, um, what was your journey like when it comes to that? 
Yeah. So we had been up there for two, maybe a week and a half, two weeks, and we'd been skunked a time. I mean, we'd seen some caribou, been skunked a bunch. And it's interesting when Donnie invited me on the hunt, he was like, are you going to hunt? And I, my first answer was, no, I'm a journalist. Like, I don't want to get too involved in the story. And he was, and he replied, okay, man, but you know, I think you'd really understand what we come up here for a lot more if you were to hunt. And, you know, I trusted him on that and I decided I was going to do it, but I still had a lot of reservation. I was like, okay, I think I will, but you know, we'll see. So we'd been sitting on this hill glassing for so long and Finally, we get in a position where we see these caribou on this opposite hill and there's two old bulls in there and they start kind of moving down this valley towards this saddle that drops down into another valley. And, you know, Donnie was like, hey, if we nuke along this hill, go get to that saddle before them and then sort of cut over, we might be in a good position. So here we go. (laughs) And, you know, I'm up there to hunt, but I'm, I'm reticent about hunting the whole time. Like, as I'm carrying this, you know, the rifle across the tundra, I'm just like, oh man, I might actually have to use this thing. Like, yeah. And I do this. You know. Yeah. Um, I've always eaten meat, you know, 94% of Americans do, I think is the statistic, but I didn't really, I don't know if I wanted to cross that sort of what I assumed would be this, you know, emotional barrier. And, um, just wasn't sure if I wanted to go there, but we make it across the saddle. We hit the ground on the tundra and we start, um, you know, belly crawling in to where we think these caribou are going to, going to come. And we get 200 yards. We stop. Donnie pops up with the, with the binoculars, nothing hit the tundra again, another hundred yards. And I'm looking through the rifle scope. He's looking through the uh, binoculars. We see these antlers appear on the apex of the saddle. And here they come. And um, there's a herd of, I think it was about 30. And we're kind of surveying them. I'm trying to see, you know, which are, which are the two old bulls. And we see this one where his antlers are sort of like shifting as he walks. And um, he's limping. And it was like, Donnie immediately, we saw it at the same time. And Donnie just goes, that's your bull. That's your bull. The one that's limping. Like, that's it, you know? And I'm like, okay. So we're, they start, you know, walking out and they get within, you know, 150 yards and 125, then maybe like a hundred. And this old bull keeps going in and out of the herd. So I can't get a clean shot. And the whole time I'm, I'm like, I'm still not a hundred percent sure if I'm going to pull the trigger and they start they get past the closest point and they keep walking and Donnie's like, you can see him a little hesitant, you know? And he goes, Hey man, if you don't want to take the shot, you do not have to take the shot, but if you're going to take the shot, you need to take it now. And sort of right after he says that there's like kind of this clearing and it opens up and that bull that was limping was there. And he just kind of looks up and I pull the trigger. Um, we think it hits him. Donnie's like, shoot again, shoot again. So pull it again. And right after that, I mean, the, the herd spooks, the caribou that I shot, you know, he hits the ground and I'm thinking, Oh my God, there is no coming back from this. What have you done? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it, it hit me pretty heavy. 
So we walk out there and I start, I start seeing the, um, the caribou starts kind of having those spastic leg movements, you know, Mm because energy spilling from his body. And I'm thinking he's still alive. I'm like, man, I need to run and like shoot this thing because he's suffering. And Donnie's like, Whoa, dude, you know, he's, it's fine. That's natural. We get there and he's down. And I mean, I got to give massive props to Donnie. He is the perfect person to go, uh, hunting with your first time. Cause he just, you know, looks at me and goes, Hey, we're going to go get your stuff. We'll be back. And he leaves me there. And I just kind of sat there and was like, very strange feeling of being, feeling about as depressed as I've ever felt, but also about as alive as I've ever felt, you know? And it was this very heavy, strange new feeling to me. And I think ultimately at that point, I was like, I'm never going to hunt again. Like, I'm just, I'm just not going to do it. And cause I'm looking at this herd that he was with on the hill, just thinking, oh man, you know, I'm just, I just created a Bambi up there. Or something. Mm-hmm. And um, Donnie gets back and William and we start breaking this caribou down. And that's when my mind started to change because I could see that this ultimately was meat that was going to feed me and my family. And also, you know, it was going to go to Donnie and William and their families. And seeing the meat, like something just shifted for me. Where I'm like, dude, you eat meat like every single day. And never once do you feel any ounce of regret or sadness, or you don't even think about it at all. But like, here you are with this meat feeling this way. And it made me realize that like, by hunting, we're inserting ourselves in the life cycle in a way that is very enlightening for us. And, you know, for me personally, it was, it was very rewarding in that it also taught me a lot about the meat I eat just at home every day. It made, it forced me to think about the choices I make, um, with what food is on my plate and where it came from. And it just made me more cognizant of that. And, um, I mean, I can say, uh, paradoxically, you would think that once a person begins hunting, they would eat a lot more meat. The opposite has been true for me. Hmm. Um, I'm a lot more, I mean, I still eat meat. I am by no means a vegetarian. I probably eat meat um, every other day or so, but like I've reduced my meat consumption. Cause I'm like, I don't, do I need to eat meat right now? I don't know. You know? Um, but it also made me realize how removed we are in the modern world from the life cycle and what effect has that had on us? So to sort of chase down that idea, I ended up traveling to, uh, Bhutan which is this country in Asia that's by Nepal. And in Bhutan, people are thought to think about death at least once each day. Now, paradoxically, you would think that would really bum a country out. And Bhutan is not that developed, but they're also the hap- one of the happiest countries on earth. And a lot of the research suggests it's because they think about death. So it's just, a, it's, it's very fascinating that You know, in America, we remove ourselves from it, not only with what we eat, but also with how we deal with funerals, um, how we plan our lives. Like people don't tend people tend to think they're just going to like live forever. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, We just don't face it. And by facing it, um, whether through hunting or thinking about, you know, your own mortality, that can change a lot of things uh, for people. And they've followed this up with research that does show that people who think 
about their death and sort of understand that they're going to die one day, it makes them live in a way that makes them happier. Cause all of a sudden, you know, your everyday bullshit just starts to fade. Like if I realize that, Hey, one day I'm not going to be here. Like I'm probably not going to be as much of an asshole in traffic. Right. Like just like, yeah. eh, whatever. Like, you know, we have all these petty little squabbles we get into every day. That stuff, you just sort of don't care as much about it. And you really focus on what you think is going to move the dial for you and what matters in your life. Yeah. It's the same thing when you've got a family friend who's, you know, someone dies tragically in a car accident or something. When that stuff hits close to home and you, you know, it, it hits you viscerally like that, you all of a sudden get a little, unfortunately, usually it's a short window, but a window of clarity where you, you know, take a step back and take perspective of things and, and have that reminder that, geez, this stupid thing at work or this stupid squabble with my wife or this thing or that thing, gosh, it doesn't matter in the big scheme of things. Helps you appreciate yeah. things again. It helps recenter you on, like you said, what's what's most important. Um, it's 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 something that I, I know is talked a lot about within um, kind of the the stoic philosophy world too. <laughs> where you know this this idea of reflecting on your mortality is is a key foundation as well just just always kind of remembering this could all end tomorrow so you're happy with what you've done you're happy with what you're planning on doing today are you making the right decisions because nothing's guaranteed um yeah talk totally. about a talk about a palate cleanser for a lot of things yeah and one of the i mean one of the craziest things is so i i go to bhutan and it is it's a fascinating country it's the only capital city in the world that does not have a stoplight. I mean, it's very, very underdeveloped. But again, they're one of the 20th, hap 20th happy, 20 happiest countries in the world. <laughs> Took me a minute to say <laughs> that, right? Um, but they're they're one of the least developed. And one of the things I did to understand this is there is a guy who's an economist at Oxford that really runs all this data who was interesting to talk, talk to about this. But then I went and visited a guy who is sort of a leader in the Buddhist faith there. It's, um, you know, it's a, it's a Buddhist nation. And to get up to meet with this guy, uh, his title is a Kempo. So he's a monk and he lives in this shack that is uh, outside this monastery that's up on a cliff. Now to visit Bhutan because of government regulations, you have to hire a driver to take you everywhere. My driver's got this like smart car, basically. I mean, it's this tiny little thing. And we got to go up this, you know, four by four road to get up to this uh, monastery to meet this dude in his shack. And it's like, I mean, this this driver is just he could win the Baja 500 <laughs> or 1000. I'll tell you that, man, like that drive up there was just like, I mean, just amazing. And, um, you know, I, he parks, I hike along this ridge, go see this guy in his shack, get in there. First room, there's nothing in there. Um, second room is a very basic kitchen with, you know, a cooktop and a sink. And the third, I like have to pull this drape open. And first thing I see is this massive statue of the Buddha. And it's flanked by like candles and smaller statues and photos of, of you know, Buddhist leaders. And uh, then I look left and there's, you know, there's incense smoke in the air. And the sun is shining through this window. And it's just like catching the smoke and beyond the smoke, I can see this face and it's like, I hear this voice. It's welcome 
you know, and it's this Buddhist monk and he's on this like platform in the lotus position and his full orange robes, shaved head. I mean, it was just like, if you're picturing like, what's the most cliche thing you could think about Uh in terms of like this Western journalist going to meet, you know, the monk in Bhutan. I mean, this was it, dude. This was totally it. (laughs) Just like the movie. (laughs) Just like the movie. And, uh, so I sit down there and we talk for a couple hours just about, uh, death and especially how the West sees death versus how they see it in Bhutan. And, you know, he talked about in the West, we see life as like trying to accomplish a checklist. It's like, I'm going to graduate college. Then I'm going to buy a car. Then I'm going to get a job. Then I'm going to get married. Then I'm going to have a kid. And I'm going to do this. Then I'm going to do that. And we're always looking ahead to the next thing. You know, we're not quite satisfied. And he really thinks about it. Like if we can, if we can learn to accept that we are going to die one day and really try and live in this moment. And we never know when we're going to die. It's the thing. Death could come at any time, you know, Um, we can start to make decisions that maybe aren't just so automatic. Not saying that any of those things that I laid out are bad in any way, but we often don't stop and question why we're doing the things we do. And that can lead us to maybe live a little bit truer than ourselves. And one of the final things this guy uh, says to me is, Hey, just remember death can come at any time. Couple days later, I'm going to visit this. Uh, it was like a tour. It was a non-work day. It was like I'll do a tourist thing day. Um, I go to visit this really famous uh, monastery that is like built into the side of a cliff. Um, you have to hike to get up there. It's like a five-mile hike, pretty gnarly hike because it's um, it's in the foothills of the Himalayas, so the altitude really starts to get you. And so me and this driver, we hike up there. We go see it and there's all this interesting death imagery and um, just really fascinating place. And we're leaving and the driver's like, hey, uh, he start, he's like, hey, someone, someone's sick. And he starts running over to this group of people. And um, this uh, Buddhist monk was like on the ground, had had some sort of incident. And he's on these like really steep steps kind of on a cliff. So we all decide like. We need to get this guy down and no, I'm the only person that speaks English. Everyone else is speaking, speaking Bhutanese. So my driver's kind of having to be this like middleman sort of It's like, Hey, we need to get him off the steps, get him down, you know? And I'm the only person that knows CPR, which I learned <laughs> for my, uh, venture into the, uh, Alaskan wild and, um, start doing CPR on this guy. He's, I mean, he's a monk bald head. He's in his alt monks robes and, and, um, did CPR on this dude for like 20 minutes and he didn't make it. And it was just like, I came here to learn about death. And we have this situation where there's this guy, like there was another tourist around me who was like, I literally talked to that guy and we laughed together at the bottom of the hike and he was totally fine. And then for the guy was probably like 60 and for whatever reason he had some incident and it was like what he just couldn't, you know, we tried to call for a helicopter but it was too cliffy. Nothing could come in. And it was just like, man, I mean, it like it was intense, but it also cemented this idea. That's like death can come at any time. Like mm-hmm. we can't, we can't predict anything, whether it's like you said, a, a car accident or whether we have some weird genetic thing or, you know, you have a heart attack unexpectedly. I mean, man, that'll, that definitely made me start thinking about, you know, how am I spending my time? Where is my attention going? Am I doing the things that really, truly fulfill me? I mean, that 
that, that sort of thing will, you know, you, that self corrects once you get yourself in a position like that. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's a, a, a heck of a personal experience to really illustrate and, and tie a bow on a concept you're trying to learn more about. That's for sure. But, yeah. But I got to believe this entire journey has, has been, has been something like that in its own way for you. So now that it's done, you've chased this rabbit, trying to learn about these different things. You've, you've had all these experiences. You spent a month plus in the Arctic wilderness. You've confronted death in a number of different ways. Now you've explored how discomfort may actually really lead to much better things in our lives. I know this book I'm sure you were hoping this book will change people in some kind of way, but how has this book changed you? What's changed in your life now after this journey for yourself? Yeah, I think it's a lot of it is just awareness of how freaking lucky we have it today. I mean, I don't want the message of this book to be that comfort is bad. Comfort is awesome. It is amazing that we can, you and I can have this conversation right now, uh, over the internet, and then it could go out to people and, you know, benefit people. Um, it's amazing that, you know, I can drive through McDonald's and get a quarter pounder that tastes delicious. Like all these things are amazing. There's a reason we're so successful as a species, but we have these internal drives that have us always default to that, which is most comfortable. And if we don't push against that, I think we lose a lot of our understanding of what it means to truly you know, feel alive and we lose the perspective to realize just how damn lucky we have it now. It's like when I got, when I got out of the Arctic, we were in this, you know, little shack of a airport in Kotzebue, Alaska. And, um, I used the restroom and I go wash my hands and the water's warm. And it's like the biggest shit eating grin of my life <laughs> yeah. went across my face. I was like, Oh my God, warm water, That's you know? Nice. Yeah. And that, and that happened every time I'd use warm water for like weeks after. And you also just start to realize like, oh man, like we have it so good now. And that gives you a lot of gratitude. And like, it just changes your every, uh, I think it colors having these moments, you know, whether it's like a hunt where you had to face down some sort of discomfort and it was challenging, or you do one of those Masogi things I talked about, or really anything that can change your perspective and realize, help you realize um, how lucky you are to be alive, I think is, is very worthwhile. Like my wife and I, this is a stupid story, but my wife and I always go to this uh, one restaurant by our house and it's, there's always a wait. It's always very inefficient uh, in terms of like how it's managed, but the food is worth it, you know? But when we sit and wait, when we're, when we're standing there waiting, I mean, I would always just get so frustrated before I went up to Alaska. I'm like, like, damn it. If they would just do this and this and this, they could move more people through. And I can't believe they're <laughs> wasting my time. Cause uh, I am apparently uh, just so damn important, you know? <laughs> well, when I get back from Alaska, it's like first time we go in there, I'm just standing there. And like, I just think, man, it's so nice to be in this warm building. Oh man. I can't wait to eat this food. Like, I'm still underweight. This is going to be so good. And I just realized like, how can you bitch about having to wait five minutes in a restaurant that is w- either heated or air conditioned? You're about to eat like 
more calories in one sitting than our ancestors used to be able to eat in an, in a single day. And it's like well-prepared and you're going to sit doing it the whole time. And you didn't have to work one single amount of calories worth to do it. I mean, it's just like, we have it so amazing now and we sometimes forget that. And so we need moments that sort of push up against that comfort and just say, Hey, snap out of it. This is freaking awesome to live right now. And you better recognize that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's a great point. So there's, there's a lot of different things that folks could take out of this. There's a lot of different action items that someone could latch onto and, and run down and apply in their own life. But if you had to pick one single change or one single idea that you could propose to, to our audience and say, man, try this one thing of all the things we've talked about what would that one thing be? And maybe it could be because you think it's the most impactful. Maybe you think it's the most contrary to popular uh, popularity or popular opinion. Maybe, I don't know, but what's one thing if you had to narrow it down one action item, what's that? I would probably, this is, this is probably cheating. I would probably go back to that idea of, do some big epic thing outside because it's going to force you to face all these things that I just talked about. Like you're yeah. going to have uh, a real challenge. You're probably going to be out there long enough that you're like, oh man, I'm, I'm starving right now. I didn't pack in enough food. You're going to be out in nature for an extended period of time. You're going to have to put your body through physical things that it probably hasn't gone through again. So it really just ticks all these little thing things in its own way. I mean, that's like we've kind of been circling around this whole time is, I mean, that's why hunting's amazing is it hits all these things that we've just been talking about and really teaches us a lot about ourselves. Yeah. In that's, process. that's the only complaint I think I have about your book is that you didn't have like the last page being all right. And the whole purpose of this book was to explain <laughs> to you why you should take up hunting. And, uh, yeah, I, I kid, but, but really the book was great. I, I really I enjoyed think it. Should. Yeah. It was, uh, it was a great read, interesting, and I guess my last thing I'm curious about is, are you going to do it again? You going to hunt again? Yes, I am. I've had. I'm definitely going to hunt again. Um, I had someone ask me, so are you a hunter now? And I had to think about that one. And I don't, I don't know if I would classify myself as a hunter yet. Maybe it's I feel like I haven't earned it, or maybe it's I feel like, um, because I'm primarily first and foremost a writer. That if I if I start to identify with you know, I'm a hunter or be whatever it is. Right. And, and maybe I couldn't criticize it if I needed to in my writing. Sure. Um, that's interesting. But I'm def yeah, but I'm definitely going to hunt again. I mean, I've talked to Donnie, um, Donnie set me up with a bow and so I've started shooting that and we're gonna, we're gonna get some stuff going soon. Yeah. I've, I've put in for tags too, but the other thing that makes, uh, that I think is really interesting with hunting, going back to that Masogi idea is it is damn hard. Mm -hmm. Like, you're probably going to fail, especially when you're new. I mean, I put in for all these tags right when I got back and it was just like, strike, 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 right. you know, and <laughs> it's just so hard to get. So it's the idea that you actually have to work and dedicate yourself to get into this game is makes it that much more rewarding. And also because the stakes are so much higher than like, I don't know, golfing, yeah. you know, so. very, very, very true. It's, 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 uh, as serious as anything can get. So forces, forces a lot of these 
a lot of these perspective shifting things that you've talked about all come into play when it comes to hunting for, for so many reasons. So it's a really interesting interplay and I'm, I'm glad that, you know, people could write this book with a lot of different, you know, adventures being the theme of their story. And I thought it was really interesting that hunting ended up being the one that, that uh, worked with this story. And, and I think it was a perfect illustration. So for folks that want to pick up a copy of the book, where do you want them to look for it? When is it out? Uh, what do they need to know? Uh, it is out uh, May 11th. So I'm not sure when you're airing this, but it could be out now if you air it uh, May 11th. And um, you can find it wherever books are sold. I mean, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all that stuff. There's a uh, bookstore here in my hometown of Las Vegas that I partnered up with. And uh, I did that because they do a lot of their funding goes to uh, writing programs for any inner city kids. And it's called The Writer's Block. So if you go to thewritersblock.org slash Easter, you can get it there. I'll sign it. Some of the money goes to these programs. So that's kind of a cool way to do it because it also supports that independent bookstore. And then, I don't know, if you want to know more about me, I got a website. It's eastermichael.com. And um, yeah, you can hit me up on Instagram, whatever. Email me. I'm happy to chat, answer questions, all that kind of stuff. Awesome. Well, uh well done with the book, Michael. This is a really good one. I'm excited to recommend it to people. I absolutely recommend it to people listening. And uh, I hope it does uh, f- just swimmingly well. I hope it's a New York Times bestseller and a lot of people pick it up. And uh, I think a lot of people's lives will be positively changed because of it. So, uh, so bravo on that. And thanks for chatting. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks a lot for having me, man. I really appreciate um, the kind words coming from you. I mean, I love that wild country and I think we definitely see a lot of things um, the same way, but kind of coming at it from uh, slightly different angles, which is is really cool to see that overlapped. And it was awesome to talk to you. Yeah, I agree. I uh, I think we should do it again. For sure. And that's a wrap. Thank you for joining us. As I mentioned, highly recommend this book. Head on over to Amazon or wherever it is you want to pick up your books and check out The Comfort Crisis. Really enjoyed this one. Hope you did too. Thanks for tuning in. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.